Hi everyone and welcome back to Adoption Hacks. We took a little mid-season break, but we are back with fresh episodes. Amazing guests and topics are coming your way this spring. And here to kick it off is the wonderful Lahia Cushman. This episode is longer than our average episode, but I just could not cut anything out. We talk about everything in the adoption world right now. Community, race, the future of adoption training, loss, and how to love well. Here's our interview. All right, welcome Lahia to Adoption Hacks. Thanks so much for being here. Having me, I'm so excited to um, get to share today. Would you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and your family? Yeah, so um, I am the daughter of immigrants, first generation American, one of six. Um, My husband and I, um, I always tell people I married a white guy from Jersey, Um, but for those who can't me, um, I am a Black Latina um, who we adopted our only child as an infant. We were actually in the delivery room when he was born, and I got to cut the umbilical cord, which is super cool. Um, and um, yeah, that's us. We uh, have lived most of our life in the Deep South, which is crazy considering I'm from New York City. Um, but my husband is a veteran, and at the time he was in the military, so we we moved around a lot, um, but always in the South. So we've lived in Kentucky and Tennessee, um, and as of most recently, North Carolina, and now we're in Tampa, Florida. I am also, and I always forget to tell people this, um, I am the director of adoptions (laughs) um, for the city of Tampa, um, where I oversee adoptions, post-adoptions, and a ton of other um, foster care programs for the Department of Children and Families. That's amazing. And I found you online through Instagram um, because I just so appreciate uh, your your words concerning adoption and foster care. You have such a beautiful perspective and you do a lot of work for um, for adopted parents and everyone in the triad. And, and I just really appreciate the, the intellect that you bring and the thoughts that you bring um, towards everything that you share. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, Um, When I started um, my Instagram um, page, uh, Lihia Speaks, it was, I literally started it in, I think it was January of this year, just because I wanted to separate my personal from my professional page. Mm -hmm. And over the last several months, it has just exploded, (laughs) feeling like our story has some value. And so I'm just Mm -hmm. super humbled by that and just excited that our story can help somebody. Um, so that's always been our intent. And I say ours because it's not just my story, it's my son's story, it's my husband's story, and it's complex and complicated, but um, that there's also grace in the whole process of adoption, which is why I talk about our, our son's um, first mom in the way that I do, um, because um, I think there's a lot of stigmas in adoption, as you very well know. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts at the beginning, how we talk about first families and their inability to care for children, how we talk about ourselves and how we save children when in actuality our children save us in a lot of ways. Um, and how we, how we talk about it with the community, right? How do we teach our children what their story is really about in a way that's meaningful and not, um, and doesn't make them feel less than. So that's why I did it in a nutshell. Um, So how did you come to adoption? Yeah, so I was an adoption professional first for about two years. Um, 
I actually applied for a job in North Carolina and I never wanted to be a social worker. So my degrees are all in psychology. Um, but adoption social worker was the only job that I thought, oh, I could kind of, I could get behind this, right? Um, and so I actually ended up being an adoption social worker for eight years. But in between my second and third year as an adoption professional, we adopted our son. Um, because I lived in a small rural town um, at the time, well, called the city, Hickory, North Carolina, um, I think a big part of my decision or our decision to adopt privately instead of from foster care was because I was already in the foster care system. And there's a lot of rules around who can do your home study. And I didn't just work in one county. I worked in multiple counties. So who would actually do my home study who didn't know me? Um, and so we decided um, that the private adoption sector would probably be the best. Um, which was, was what was best for us. But the cool part is we knew all the adoption attorneys in town. And so I got to pick the one that I felt like would be the best support for us. So I had a lot of community connections that helped us through the process. So I wasn't as nervous, but I was still very nervous. Um, and so our adoption for our son really came about after a terrible miscarriage that really... Um, really shifted our conversation. I remember my mom, after I experienced that miscarriage, she came to visit me from New York. And she said to me, do you wanna be a mom or do you wanna be pregnant? Because they're very different things. Mm -hmm. And so here's my mom who has birthed six children mm -hmm. without issue, um, saying to me that pregnancy is a part of motherhood, but it is not the only part of motherhood. Actually, she, she explained that it's a very small part of motherhood. And that if you wanted to raise a family through adoption, we would 100% support you guys. Wow. And so, you know, because we are a multiracial couple, um, interracial couple, we needed to not just talk to my family, but my husband's family as well, and just kind of get the whole family's buy-in. And, and this came from my own experience as an adoption professional. This is one of the things I was asking families to do. So, of course... I wanted to live what I was teaching and preaching. And so we sat with my in-laws and said, hey, we're considering adoption. Would you guys be open? Um, because that's our village, right? Is our village open to supporting us in this process? And of course, everyone was um, and still is. I think um, for us meeting our birth mom, who at the time, and this is totally like a God Thing. Um, but meeting our, our mom, our, our son's mom, she was seven and a half months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And we really had zero prep time, zero. <laughs> um, not only that, he was born 20 days early. Oh, so, yeah. so I think the day before he was born, we had just um, gotten our car seat and the crib set up. But we felt like we had 20 days. We felt like we were ahead of the game. We were not at all he came in a lightning flash and he has been that way in our family ever since um just wrecking havoc and changing our plans wherever we go and i love him for it um so yeah um our our sons the good thing about a private adoption for me was because i had the experience of an adopt as being a professional and coaching you know um pregnant women um who were exploring adoption as an option, supporting them, but then also working with adoptive families, I, I kind of knew what our family would need. 
um, but I also wanted to um, extend grace to her. Um, she was allowing me at medical appointments. <laughs> wow. She was welcoming me into her family. She was welcoming me into raising a child that, you know, whether she was prepared or not to parent him, she still wanted what was best for him. And so we held on to that. Um, and, you know, that night, I always tell folks, you know, the night that he was born, everyone's always curious, like, what was that like? Does she insist he be with her? Does she insist he be with you? It was a melting, right? So what happened was actually um, our hospital, one of the best hospitals I've seen manage adoption, infant adoptions in a beautiful way, is they give a room, of course, to the laboring mother, but also to the prospective adoptive family. And so he was brought into our room, my room, and she wanted to stay with us for a while for a few hours she and i were the only ones in the room with him wow. just talking about her life her story and i knew i think at that moment i knew like this is a big deal like i'm learning her whole story and i think that also taught me we have to have grace with the families that you know with with our children's first families we don't know their whole story we assume what we know because we know the worst parts but we don't know how they got there we don't know what their life was like or what they were exposed to or not. And so that's where, for me, grace comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, because of those moments, I think that for us, it was solidified for us that she would be a part of our life if she wanted to be. Um, and originally she actually said no. She didn't feel comfortable. She wanted to wait to see what he wanted um, as he grew. And I, I often tell people, you know, he was born, she left the hospital, and then at age three, we all still lived in the same community, but we had not seen her for three years or heard from her, but I had not changed my email or my phone number just to make sure you know, she was connected, um, if she needed to connect. And we bumped into each other at Walmart of all places. <laughs> and there I was with him and there she was sipping mm -hmm. on, a, on a Slurpee, a red Slurpee. <laughs> And she sees me, she looks at him, and she immediately hands him this big old super jug. <laughs> she, was nervous. she goes, here, you want some? <laughs> so, you know, um, of course I panicked because it was red, and you know how we are as new moms, right? <laughs> but I let him have it. Um, he loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, there's been, um, I wouldn't say consistent communication. I would say there has been communication. There has been connection. Um, of course, my son would love it to be more, um, but we have to respect. And I think that's the part of the triad that we don't always um, talk about, right? It's, it's not just, um, of course, what our children need is imperative, but this is a triad, right? Mm -hmm. So what the adoptive family needs is important. What the child needs is important. And what that first family needs, it's important as well. I would say it's critical. So we've got to meet everybody's needs. And sometimes that doesn't meeting someone's needs doesn't always look the same for everyone. Right. Um, so that's how long end of the story. You're, you're so right. I've never thought about it like that. But like a lot of times I feel like the, the idea is that like, well, if the adopted parent is open to it, then it should be that way. And that's not how yeah. it is. Like you have to think about right. that, that um, first mother, that birth mother's mental health and sometimes it is just easier to to not go there and so but I, I love how like there's so much anticipation about those like meetups and stuff and so I love that it was just a, a Walmart thing that yeah. probably made it just a lot more natural I would think 
It was totally natural and it kind of just, it was almost, um, I never want to invade her privacy or her space. Um, and I know that that sounds crazy because I, you know, I, I, I was in the delivery room. There's not a lot of privacy there, right? But that emotional privacy is hers and it's not my place and frankly, not my son's place to like trample on. And I know that that's not, that may sound crazy to some folks, but there are boundaries within our relationship that, and I think that's what's made it so successful over time is that I respect where she is and he is learning to respect where she is and she's learning to respect where he is. So yeah. when he says more, she's available to that. Right. Um, and if she's not, she'll tell me. And then we'll come up with a plan as a family to figure out what can we do to help him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love at the at the beginning of your story I just love your mom's advice I I mean how amazing that like someone who hadn't adopted or hadn't been in that world thought to say that to you because that is perfect advice motherhood is so much more than being pregnant it was really good and I you know and for me you know people have always asked like why didn't you do infertility why didn't you do you know fertility treatments why didn't you do why didn't you do and I think everyone's journey in adoption in in pregnancy and delivery is very private. And I think that we decided what was best for us as a family. And this is what we chose for ourselves. Um, And it was the right decision. I would not trade anything. People have asked me before, like, um, so if you could get your fertility, right? If your infertility could be resolved, would would you take this whole journey back? Absolutely not. This is the only journey I know, first of all. And the only son I have, the only child I have, there's no one that compares to that. So for us, um, and people freak out when I say this too, but I am thankful for my infertility because it brought me to my son and so many other things, right? But it also helped me understand um, the needs of prospective adoptive families that, you know, right now there's a huge, I don't know if you can tell, but there is a, a, a big um, push for adoptive families to do better, to do different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, um, but I also feel like the adoption professional may be complicit in that to some degree. I've been in this industry, if you will, for 20 years, and I know what we've done well, and I know what we haven't done so great at. And so training families pre, post, during <laughs> is not something we do great at. We provide one training and then we're good. And now we have the adoption competency training, which is great. Um, but I still don't feel like it's enough. So I'm creating my own trainings in my own community um, to address some of the things that I feel like we absolutely must offer families, especially now. So for us, I think um, as professionals, we need to evolve. Adoptions has evolved. Adult adoptees are speaking and we need to listen intently, take notes and make changes. We can't change what happened before, but we can change what we're doing right now. So that's what I'm... I'm curious what those trainings look like that you're providing. Yeah, so one is, um, so my job also has allowed me access to national committees and boards. So I'm, I'm working really closely um, with Adoptus Kids, which is really cool to just kind of see how they're Um, revamping and rebranding and really changing some of the work that they do and it's trickling down across the states but one of the things that I'm um, that I've I've already um, rolled out is a um, racial equity and adoption training Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of ouch ping points right Um, but it's something that we're not talking about if we know 
that, you know, children of color, black and brown kids are staying in foster care longer, are, are being um, adopted into homes um, at a much higher rate than, 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 non, than white children. Um, we are failing as professionals to train, and I'm talking about in the private sector and in the foster care sector, we're doing a disservice to white families wanting to adopt black and brown kids or black families wanting to adopt white children. We're doing a disservice when we're not talking about race. Yeah. And when we're not asking them, okay, so you're here to adopt four little black boys under the age of six, beautiful, amazing. Tell me about the work that you've done to prepare to parent black men. And that was a hard question, never asked before. Mm -hmm. um, but when we asked it, the family said, we haven't, we just love all people. And that's great, but that's not enough. And that's the truth, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were concerned, like, oh my gosh, first of all, you're talking about race, let's not do that. <laughs> well, we have to in adoptions. <laughs> like, it's crazy if we don't, because our families become, and you guys can speak to this too, our families instantly become a multi-ethnic, multi-racial family instantly. Mm -hmm. And we haven't done the work, right, to address what is it going to feel like to experience racism when we never have and so my husband and i two different worlds he's never experienced racism until he was married to me mm -hmm. right it's when you're in relationship mm -hmm. as a white person i think that you then start to see what is going on and so for my for my own personal family um i think that for us over time we have experienced racism in varying ways varying degrees Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we had to make really hard decisions about where do we live, what churches do we go to, mm -hmm. what community groups do, are we a part of, because our son is watching. Mm -hmm. And we want his voice to be amplified and we want him to see himself in his community. And so for us, it was um, trainings like the one I'm doing now um, is hard. Um, but it's, it's necessary. And I'm not just offering it to prospective adoptive families or post-adopt families. I'm offering it to professionals in our, in our community. Um, I started, I rolled it out actually training my team um, who never really had to dig this deep. They've talked about race and culture and diversity, but not this deep. Yeah. Um, and now I feel like we're on the right path to train families well. Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to parent children that don't look like you? And I don't have all the answers, but we have to start the conversation mm -hmm. and then we'll get to the answers, right? I have some answers, but not all. Um, recently I was on a podcast and one of the questions that was asked of me was, um, what do I believe the future of transracial adoptions is given the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm -hmm. And I kind of chuckled at that <laughs> because um, I'm, I'm a transracial adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. um, my husband's white, our son is, is a mixed-race child, and here I am, um, mixed-race myself, you know, trying to figure out this crazy world we're in. And I said, um, the future of transracial adoption is what it's always been, you know? Children are still going to be adopted into white families, right? White meaning well, loving, caring families. Um, but we have to do better at training. Yeah. We have to do better at um, pushing the envelope in pre-adoption. Here's what we need you, here's materials we need you to read. Here's stuff that we need you to start working on and come back and tell us what you've learned. And then let's have dialogue about it. We don't do that. I've worked in five different states 
We don't do that as a nation. And so we have to do it. If we're going to listen to folks like at Wreck and Wonder, right, April Dinwoody, we're going to listen to them. We have to also change. And so this for us is a big part of that change. It's just changing the narrative and how do we prepare and support families and, and that we bring in families willing to do the work yeah. because it's going to require a lot of work. I don't know what it means to parent a child of Asian descent, mm-hmm. right? I know what it's like to parent my, my mixed race son in this country. Um, so I can speak on that. And I think the more families like ours start speaking out on what we've learned along the way, yeah. I think it's going to do a huge service to families who are, who, are, who are in need of it. And that's why I started Lehia Speaks. It was because of that. That's why I started blogging. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to understand, like, you're not alone. I didn't get all of this right either. I have screwed up a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. I remember telling my son, hey, we're going to do your DNA. So exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to do your DNA. And his whole life, I had told him he's half Black and half White. Yeah. Well, I should have never said that. <laughs> That's not true, right? So when we get his DNA back, he's like 52% from Europe, you know, 40-something, uh-huh. you know. And he was like, I thought that I was half and half, uh-huh. like, you totally screwed yeah. me up. DNA has been so huge for him and for us as a family to just be able to talk about, holy, holy cow, like you come from all parts of the world. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, talk about how exciting that is, how sad it is that, you know, part of your DNA came from ships, from slave ships. And one of the things he said to us recently was that his DNA tells the story of him. And I think that's so cool for adopted kids who some don't know who they're first parents are at all right mm-hmm. to at least know the story of their dna is huge so i'm a big proponent adopted kids having dna testing done i think it's um it opens a, a, the floodgates for a totally different perspective on race mm-hmm. and diversity and equity mm-hmm. that's a great idea this is just a personal question like from me as yeah. a mom like what how old was your son when you did that or what do you think is the right age to Make, take, make that step, I guess. I think in school, they were talking about, I want to say maybe it was fifth grade, because they were talking about DNA, mm-hmm. um, breakup of DNA and the molecule, molecules within the DNA. And he was like, I wonder what my DNA says, right? Yeah. And so at that time, there was a huge push professionally in the adoption world for kids to get DNA testing. So I knew I was a post-adoption supervisor at the time, and I was paying for a bunch of these requests for families to get these, these, this DNA test done. And I thought, you know what, let's just do it. Let's just see what it says. And it was so helpful because we used, um, no plug here, but we just chose to use Ancestry.com for a million reasons. But one is my husband's Ancestry line and his family had done so much work on Ancestry.com that we just wanted it to connect to that, that family line, you know, in that yeah. way. And it's really cool because it gives you history of the people at that time history of his journey, like just so much information. Um, And we have it hanging up and he checks it out. It'll update regularly. So we'll download it and check it out. But I think he was about nine, 10 when we did it. Um, And still, even this year we were, we got a new update because as more people put their DNA in the the updates become more and more refined. Um, So I, about yearly we get an update on what's changed or what is still the same um but it doesn't change by huge percentage you know um percentage points so it's been really cool for Mm -hmm. us to do it to just kind of let him know the world is bigger than what 
we tell you it is. It's bigger than what the world says. It's bigger than that box you have to check identifying who you are. Yeah. It's so much bigger than that. So um, that has been a helpful tool for us for sure. That's that's so cool. I, I just love what you shared about that training. I think that's so that's so key for us as adoptive parents. Like I know it, when you're trying to rush through a home study, those trainings can be like, oh, I have to do another hour long training or whatever. But my goodness, it's so crucial. And I, I see this changing in some agencies. I don't know, you know, how it's how widespread it is, but that like they're doing they're almost doing like waves of training, especially like transracially. Like you have yeah. to do some for home study, but then you do some while you're waiting. And then when you get matched, you do more. And and I yeah. I like that model. I like that model too. I, I again I think um Chunking it in that way is really great. I also think in post, mm-hmm. right, post-placement, post-adoption, that's where the real work begins. So refreshers are key and helpful. And that's really what I'm trying to push at our agency is not just the chunking, but then what do we do after? What do we provide after? And in North Carolina, um, we not only provided post-care um, uh trainings like webinars but we also provided a annual so for national adoption month what we did in north carolina um in my my town was a conference only for adoption adoptive parents not for professionals no one else but we brought in all the top professionals to talk to families um about you know tbri to talk to them about trainings and mental health and trauma, but also race, and also so many other things that were so critical, are so critical to the needs of our children. For a long time, because people always ask me, um, do Black families adopt, right? And we can talk about more about that in a, in a minute, but I think white families have done an exceptional job in stepping in, in supporting, in encouraging, in adopting, um, but there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to race. Um, and we cannot continue. I feel complicit if I continue to say, well, they have a good heart and that's great. And they have a lot of love and that's great. But if anybody's been following me for quite some time, you know, I always say love is not enough. Mm-hmm. It must be followed up with action. Yeah. Um, and action means taking that training, reading that book, stepping out of your comfort zone. Um, it might look like protesting with your kid if that's what they need to do. Yeah. Um, so what does that look like for us? Um, our love and action meant relocating completely and moving to a city, which is not something we really wanted to do. We loved our home. We loved our jobs, but it was time um, because our son was not seeing himself in our community. And that was crazy to mm-hmm. us. Um, so yeah, love requires action. And yeah, the first step of action is adopting, but then what do we do after? There's yeah. a lot of work that comes after. That's so good. Yeah, I love that. I love how you share that about action. It's so true. And especially with transracial adoption, you there's so many things you that changes your family forever. And it's not just a matter of bringing a child in and, and making them like adjust to your life and whatever, but it is now we are a Korean family because we have a Korean I, son. And I right. remember... Uh, talking with someone I can't remember who but they were saying like you as a as the mother of white mother of a Korean son you have more in common now with 
Asian moms than white moms because your children might be treated the same way in the classroom, you know? And so just learning to like kind of adjust that, like, I, I, I got to have a different community now because it's not just about him fitting in or whatever, but it's about our entire family transforming because of who we are. And yeah, like you said, like that's evaluating your neighborhood, your church, your school, everything. Yeah. Um, And I'll tell you, you know, leaving our home, leaving our jobs was scary mm -hmm. to come to the Tampa area, but I will tell you, we do not regret it one bit. Um, Our son, I think it really was solidified. We moved here two years ago, but it was really solidified a few weeks ago when my son on his Zoom call, when school just first started in August, he was meeting all his teachers for the first time. He is a math and science whiz. Like he is going to work for NASA one day. At least that's my dream. Um, And he, um, he had a black math teacher for the first time in his life. Wow. I didn't think of that. And he stops the class and says, wait, are you, are you my teacher? And she mm-hmm. says, yes, I am. He's in ninth grade. And she, and he goes, oh my gosh, I love math. I just want you to know my name's Jaden. I love math. <laughs> and, and I love that you're black because you're the first black teacher I've ever had in math in my life. Wow. And I'm hearing him say this and I'm like, dude, don't, you're in ninth grade. Like, don't, don't go there. But it was so emotional for him. He just felt like mm-hmm. I need to say this. He had never seen himself reflected in the teachers that were teaching him. Mm-hmm. And that is important. That was important for us. I grew up in New York City. Everybody was different, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and with it came, came some, some difficult times, but with it also came this beautiful, rich culture that I grew up in, that my husband in New Jersey grew up in, yeah. that our son didn't have until two years ago. So, you know, I, I used to tell adoptive families, no, you don't have to move. This is where the complicity comes from, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to move. If your community, you know, doesn't like your family or doesn't appreciate them, they'll get used to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not enough, right? Uh, and I'm not, I don't want to tell families what to do. I'm going to tell you what worked for me. Mm-hmm. Leaving worked for us. Starting a new worked for us. Finding a church that was diverse, mm-hmm. not only diverse, but spoke out on the issues of Black lives mm-hmm. was huge for us. Um, and so, you know, I think um, as a family, it's been good. And I think... Um, we, we can't just limit our kids to one space and expect them to thrive when the community around them isn't allowed, isn't making space for that. Mic drop. That's good. Um, okay. So let's get into that comment you made about the, the rumor, the stigma that black families, black, um, parents do not adopt. Um, Uh as a black adoptive mom, did you feel additional hurdles to you in the adoption world? or in, in finding community? So again, I was an adoption professional, so I knew all the right people. And my, my, my adoption process is very unique in that, um, you know, my attorney was, um, you know, a good f- professional friend. Um, and in private adoption, there's a lot of red tape that is removed from the process. So um, a lot of the waiting for finalization, a lot of those things, um, I didn't experience in our private adoption. Now, where I did experience it was in community. Um, I still can walk into a conference room or walk into a meeting with all my staff in a room full of people who don't know me, and no one would assume I was the director of adoptions. It would be my staff or someone else. And I think, 
that right there alone is part of our problem. We make assumptions of people just by meeting them, right? And we all do it. Um, but then we, we, we also, and I was complicit in this, spread this rumor, <laughs> this false truth that black families do not adopt, that they only adopt relatives. If they do adopt, it's only relatives. And I'm gonna be honest, uh, I've been in doing this work for 20 years and it was just this year, 2020, that I realized that I was not the only one. Mm-hmm. That I realized that somehow, and I'm just gonna say this, but somehow white moms have become the experts in the room, white adoptive moms on the needs of black children, but there was never room for me to share that. I had to create my own space for that, my own blog, write my own book, put myself, my whole story out there for people to say, oh wait, there's something here. And then what started to happen right after George Floyd is I started seeing sites popping up and more sites popping up and more sites popping up. And before you knew it, I found a whole community of black adoptive moms. So there's a, there's a site called Fab Moms on Instagram, um, Foster Adoptive Black Moms. There's thousands of us on there, mm-hmm. thousands. And for the first time I realized, oh my goodness, like I found my village. Mm-hmm. We've adopted all kinds of adoptions, right? Privately, domestically, you know, foster care, not intercountry. We've done it all. But our story, we're not as visible. Our stories don't get told. And so on that platform, we've been able to kind of organize, get the word out, and share our stories on platforms that I never thought would even talk about our story, right? So um, that's where I found out about the Love What Matters um, site. And they were looking for adoption stories. And we flooded (laughs) the gates with our stories. And that's how my family and I got featured, which was super exciting, right? Um, But for us, I think that was, and I don't want to speak for all Black adoptive moms. I want to speak for how I feel about what I have discovered is that Um, without getting emotional, is that I am not alone. Um, I am not the only one. And that there is value in us standing together and sharing our truth. It's just somehow, I'm gonna give you a great example. I have, my my team also over trains prospective adoptive families. So that training you and I were talking about, you know, we train that, right? And in doing so, um, I get a lot of complaints from families Um, who don't make it into the class. And I normally, you know, sit with them, empathize, and some I'll rule in and some I'll say, well, I'm sorry, you know, you you just don't fit what we're needing to, you know, for the children that we have in in our pool. Um, And so I had a black mom call me and she asked me, do I value black motherhood? Because she had tried to get into our class four times and every time she was ruled out for little things, it was very strange. I don't know how it happened, but it did. Um, And I've worked on that with my own team. But what she said to me, that question haunts me till this day. Do I value black motherhood? Do I value black families? She doesn't know what I look like. But the impression was that I didn't. And so I never want that to be the impression. And I had to reassess, so I went to my team who are the ones who really like make these decisions. And I said, okay, here's a question I just got from a woman who wanted to know why she didn't make it into the class. By the way, she is in the class. By the way, she graduated from the class. By the way, she was the top contender in the class and was amazing, right? She asked me, 
does black motherhood matter to our to our team and they were like wait what yeah she asked does black motherhood matter and so that haunts me as a professional um but then as a black woman navigating this space i get it i have not seen black moms adoptive moms amplified at all on social media on facebook um we had to create blogs and 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 i'm not saying white transracial adoptive moms haven't done the same but i mean it you know <laughs> if you go and you look on instagram there are some foster moms with 30,000 followers and they've become the experts on transracial adoption or foster care or transracial um or just ad adoption in general and it's it's crazy when there's a whole Latinos adopt too. Like there's a whole community. Asians adopt too. Whole communities of people that we still haven't tapped into or made them visible. Yeah. And so for me, I think that's been um, really uh, a beautiful process that I'm going through. Beautifully difficult, but a beautiful process that I'm going through this year professionally is, are we making space for people that don't fit whatever that fit is right whatever we think that fit is are we coming into a space neutral um and neutrality is hard right now when everything is polarized right it's really difficult and so as professionals we've got to bring ourselves back to that yeah. um and i will tell you that um for my team it's been life-changing professionally um to experience that to have these conversations for the first time in their careers and to start looking at how do we treat families differently of all cultures, creed, you know, positions in life. I think um, we want to show that we honor Black motherhood, that we honor Black families. I mean, what else can we do? That's, That's where I'm at that. I really want to see that change happen where we do elevate because they're there. I was just talking to a friend, um, an Asian adopted mother, and she mm -hmm. was like, I have, it's taken me years, but I finally found my community. But yes. the fact that it's taken me years yes. is troubling. Yeah. Yeah, because yes. those people are there, but they're, you're right, they're not being elevated. And I think, you know, blogs are great. I have a blog, right? I, I, they're great. Um, but Instagram has been like my saving grace, right? When we sit and listen, and I'm, I'm, I've of course diversified my feed. I, I couldn't imagine my feed last year compared to this year. It's, it's like a total shift. But it's, um, it's kind of like what you said earlier. It's, it's a lot to digest. It's a lot of hard, real information about real life experiences. Mm -hmm. But that we can take that, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want adoptions to become this, this evil thing that's happening for children. It is. In some cases it is, it has turned out to be that way, but in so many more, it has not. My son can honestly articulate at 15, adoption is beautiful and it is full of loss. Mm -hmm. And that's, if we're not teaching our kids both of those perceptions, mm -hmm. then we've missed something as adoptive parents, right? Um, and I think because I was a professional, I was ready for that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready, honestly, <laughs> to address all the racial things that we would have to experience. Like the first time he was called the N word at seven wow. um, or a teacher, you know, reading a, a book of an author, an, a local author 
who refer to people, black kids as colored. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the things that, you know, or my husband being confused as my son's social worker instead of his father. Um, that still happens in our country today. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's what I mean, like, are we preparing? And I'm sure when you adopted your son, it was, it's beautiful, right? And then you start living in the community and you start to see a real shift mm-hmm. in how people talk, treat you. Um, you know, that's why I always tell adoptive families, stop letting people praise you for being an adoptive parent. Like, just stop. <laughs> we're parents, we're getting it screwed up every day like everybody else. Right. But, but there's no, re- the reward is our children are thriving and happy yeah. in the midst of their loss, in the midst of... Um, everything that has come at them they have survived and so that's what we're teaching our children is to thrive in the midst of all of this Mm -hmm. um and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't but we need to make space for all parents who are experiencing similar things in adoption not just one side of the story yeah do you have any any thoughts about like how do we transform this community what you're doing now right I said this recently on a podcast that I have the most speaking gigs I've ever had in my life this year. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a lot to do with, you know, the amplifying of black voices, right? The amplifying of the Latino voice. Um, and I know people, there was a mom the other day who reached out to me who said she was unfollowing me. And I said, okay. Thanks for the but announcement. <laughs> she felt like I was div- divisive and that the information I was sharing was, you know, it was so heavy on black that, you know, as an adoptive mom of a black son that she was white adoptive mom, she felt like I was missing the biggest part, which is love. And, you know, our son belongs to his community and all those things. And, you know, I felt like, okay, if she um, took that away from my, from my, my store, my, you know, my, my site, I can't help her with that. There is, true things happening right and i think until we start amplifying those voices we're not going to get anywhere so i love all these sites reaching out to me and saying hey can you speak on our podcast hey can you you know um do that my suggestion is keep doing it not just in 2020 but make sure that as you're inviting guests on your podcast or people to speak on your blog, which I'm trying to do as well, right? Mm-hmm. How am I diversifying that? How am I making space for people who don't look like me, who have different stories than I do, mm-hmm. um, and who, yeah, are Black, because mm-hmm. they are there. There's a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, a lot of us, I will say. And so I think that's where we start. We start making people that don't look like us visible. Yeah. Um, so my in February, I had 158 followers, and I think I just hit over 700. When you think, and that's not a huge following, right, for any spectrum, but when you think of how quickly Mm -hmm. it evolved, it's because people have amplified my voice, Mm -hmm. shared me, let me take over their Insta stories. Like, Mm -hmm. it has been huge. It's been overwhelming, but it's been a beautifully overwhelming experience. Um, And I, I think what I'm doing is I'm building my own village, too, within my own site not just of black moms or Latina moms, but white moms too. Like we're all in this together. And if we can't figure that out, our kids aren't gonna learn how to do that either. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I think that's how you do it. You just keep amplifying. There, I'm gonna say this, there is no space where that is happening consistently. 
except on like Fab Moms, right? Which was specifically right. for women of color who have adopted. But we can do it. Yeah. We just have to keep amplifying voices yeah. um, and, you know, sharing us on that level. I will tell you nationally, um, I don't want to speak for national organizations, but I am on a lot of their committees and, uh, and I'm part of their partnerships. I will tell you that that is the big shift is how are we amplifying black voices and how are we making sure that everyone gets to share their, their story in a way that can um, help others. So I don't feel alone anymore because I found my village. Um, and in that village, you know, we're developing each other, raising each other up, mentoring each other. Um, but there's way more women out there that would love to let you know. And a lot of them are social workers and some of them are not. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's wild to just see like, no, we just wanted to adopt. Okay, let's hear about your story. I think those are where, those are the things that we need to kind of um, make space for. So it's just about making space. There really hasn't been space made until 2020. Mm -hmm. That's the sad truth. Yeah. And because of horrific events that happen, but thankfully there are changes being made and, and that's wonderful to see. I mean, there's such power in being understood and being known. And yes. I yeah. can't, I can't begin to relate to that as a, as a white mother, but just like, I didn't find adoption community until we were like, you know, to after Sasha came home. And, and when that happened, it was like, it changed everything. I mean, it's why I started the podcast was like, oh my goodness, like this, I can talk to people about some of these hard issues and their eyes don't glaze over with all, <laughs> with all this information. It changed everything for me. And so I can't, I mean, that's on such like a small scale compared to what, compared to what like mothers of color experience as they adopt. But um, anyway, yeah, it, it's just, it's huge. And there's so many, there's so many parents out there who are, who haven't heard yet from someone who is like them. And I would say to those families, keep looking. We are all out there, whether yeah. you know, we're all out there, it's just finding your village. Um, I'm doing the same, I'm trying to do the same with um, prospective adoptive families who go to our training. Like at the end of training, just give them a bunch of like blogs and a bunch of, you know, if you want to hear about adult adoptees experiences, these are some Instagram pages to check out. These are some Facebook pages to check out. These are some blogs to go to. Um, that I think might be helpful because I don't think people even know where to search, like where to start um, mm -hmm. looking. So I'm, I'm glad you found your village and I'm glad I found my village and I'm glad that those villages can come together, mm -hmm. um, which is what to me is key as well, is mm -hmm. us being together because what, you know, no one understands transracial adoption like transracial adoptees and our transracial adoptive families. Mm -hmm. Like you and I know instantly we became a multi-ethnic, multicultural family, instantly. Mm -hmm. And we weren't prepared for that. <laughs> like, so what do we do with that, you know? Um, I think for my husband even, he, um, our son's getting ready to learn how to drive. And I have a lot of anxiety about it for a lot of millions of reasons, aside from him driving, but his interaction with the police. And my husband didn't, not to the degree that I did. Yeah. And I think that, you know, he's a white parent <laughs> who has not experienced what I've experienced right. with the police and driving. And so are we raising our son to stand up to people or to come home? And that was the 
that was a dinner table conversation going back and forth between the two of us. That's why I say we don't always get everything right. And I'm not saying his position was right or not. I'm saying when you only experience life through one lens, you've got to keep adding these layers. And that was a layer that took my husband a while to figure out, oh, holy crap, like he could really be hurt if he talks back. Yeah. Where my husband could talk back and be like, well, wait a minute, officer, why did you pull me over? My son can't necessarily say that. Um, so it's those things that I, nobody's training in training class about that. You wanna adopt a black child, great, congratulations, that's awesome. But you wanna adopt an Asian child, great, that's awesome. But we're not gonna tell you about how they'll be discriminated in school, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's in a positive way or not, right? Um, those are the things that I think we don't prepare families for. And with our training, our training was really um, generic. That, that day, that section of the training was really generic. Mm -hmm. It had some really negative undertones. Took the whole thing and rewrote it. And I put in things about Black Lives Matter. And I put things in about disproportionality and disparity rates. Like things that really were concrete. Yeah. Um, but that also helped kiddo, help families understand like, this is bigger than just loving a Black child. It's going to require action. And this is what action could look like for you. Um, and then a plethora of books and articles to read. And then they had, if, there was, if they were interested in adopting children that didn't look like them, which was most of our class, right? Mm -hmm. They had to write down their thoughts on some of the articles they read, some of the books that they saw, that kind of thing. So yeah. for us, it's, it's been professionally, adoption's gonna change. Mm -hmm. We all need to be ready for that. Um, but we need to be willing to change with it and evolve because our kids deserve better than what we've given. All right, will you tell us about your book, Heard? I wanna hear how that came to be and what it's about. So um, my book, Heard, oh gosh. Long story short, I've been blogging for about a year. Um, I had a really great mentor who said, you really need a blog <laughs> and you really need to start writing your stories. Um, you and your family really have a story that is unique and that may help others, right? Um, so she told me that like in November and in January, my husband is also a, at the time he was a director of marketing. So he's really great with sites and branding and all of that. So he kind of branded me and we started the blog and the blog, um, was really, really got some great reviews on it. And then the one year anniversary of the blog came up and I was like, what am I going to do to kind of like, you know, let people know I'm still writing, but I'm doing something different. And so I decided to take the blog, some of the stories on the blog, elaborate on them and add five more chapters and created a book. So um, the, the book is actually, it's called Heard, How Lost Led Us to Love. Mm -hmm. And it really starts, chapter one is our miscarriage detail, not in grave detail, but it's really about the pain behind the loss. And, um, you know, a lot of times in life, we, we, there are things that we experience that are loss. Um, and how do we navigate that? Um, so I talk at length mm -hmm. about that. Kind of what I mentioned about my mom saying, do you want to be pregnant or do you want to be a mom um, is in there. And then, um, you know, the first time our son was called the N-word or, um, you know, we share parts of racism in the deep South and raising a transracially adopted child. Um, it, there's a lot of tones and 
and sections of the book that that really talk about that and i also the book you know one of the things that i love so much about the book is how we talk about openness and, and adoption so even when we decided to relocate to florida um we met with the whole bio family met all at the park had a huge picnic he was there our son was there with him and he got to spend like five hours just saying goodbye to his family realizing that he would go back and visit of course but um, that I knew that that would be important for him and that he would need that. And he asked for that. That's what makes adoption different. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different moving parts to it. And so um, we share a lot of that in the book because I, I felt like, okay, let me take these real specific stories and lay them out in this book and just see, you know, if it resonates with people. And surprisingly enough, um, Book Authority named it one of the top adoption books of 2020, which was crazy. That's amazing. Um, and then we just won, I keep saying we, cause it's my, I feel like it's my husband and my, my project, but, mm -hmm. um, and then Healthline Parenthood just um, announced that our blog was listed as one of the top blo um, adoption blogs for 2020. So amazing. Our, it, it's super cool. I, I just, I'm, I'm floored yeah. that a 30 minute conversation of, Hey, you should start a blog <laughs> led to all of this. Right. But I think, I think that's part of it. We all have a story. We need to share our stories because it can help, even if it just helps one person, um, which is how you find your village, right? Mm -hmm. If it can help one person, then they'll share their story and then it can help one person. And I think that's my reasoning, my why um, behind it. And there are pieces of my story that no one will ever know of our son's story because um, even before I wrote the book, we sat down with him and just kind of said, okay, these are the things I wanted to talk about in the book. Tell me what you feel what is too private to share. And there were things he took off and there were things he added that he was like, no, no, but tell them this, you know? So, and what, I wrote the book a year and a half ago. So he was maybe 13 at the time, 12. Um, but I, I say all that to tell everyone, it's really important for us as adoptive parents to share our story, um, not, not just to talk about our children's trauma, right? Or how we found them, um, for lack of a better term, um, but what it means on the day-to-day -to, -day to parent our children. Um, that's where I think the real lessons are. And so you'll never hear me talk about, well, this is how much he weighed when he was born and these were some of the medical complicate. I, I don't talk about those things. I talk about, um, what it means to parent him and what are our feelings behind that and what have we learned um and i and i think you know for us that's why the book was so important and he's on the cover on the beach so he looks super cute um he chose the photo so we were really excited about it but it's it's definitely um a, a touching recollection of some of the lessons we've learned along the way in our adoption story for sure where can we find this book and where can we find you yeah, so um, you can go to my website. It's um, lihiacushman.com. That's L-I-G-I-A, cushman.com. Um, and there's a link on there for Amazon. Or you can search the book on Amazon as well. And then um, I'm also on Instagram um, at Lihia Speaks. And um, you can find me there every day sharing stuff about adoption and race and... Um, 
you know, what does it mean to love our children and our families well? So that's kind of the vibe I have right now on my um, IG page. I'm sure it'll change over time, but for now, that's kind of what we're, what we're working on. Well, thank you so much. This was, I could talk to you all day long. I'm struggling right now because I know we should, we should end up, but it's just, it's so good to talk to you and I I really appreciate you. Thank you for letting me um, chat. I I know I can be a talker. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much. I I really, um, nothing excites me more than talking about adoption and how we can change things. And I'm just so glad that um, you guys are making space for us and um, you know, that we're not sugarcoating anything. And that's what I really, it's authentic conversations about real life. And that's what matters most to us. Thank you to Lahia. Please make sure you are following her. Her Instagram is amazing. And thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at Adoption Hacks. We are trying to post all kinds of stuff through there. And you can reach us there or through email at adoptionhacksinfo at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We love those. We are so looking forward to the rest of the season and spending these next few weeks with you all. Talk to you soon.